Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to continue our series on this just truly remarkable book. I've heard, I hope you've enjoyed it so far, uh, our time in 1 Peter. Just by way of a little bit of a recap, uh, 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter himself to a group of churches located in modern-day Asia Minor, probably wrote at some time in the early 60s A.D. The letter began with just that really powerful uh, exploration of the great riches that we enjoy as a result of what Jesus did on our behalf. And so we began the letter explaining those things and exploring those things, applying just those great riches to our lives. And then we transitioned to talk about how Peter focuses on our relationships within the church, how we're supposed to treat one another in Christ. Then we saw last week that Peter changes gears once again in chapter 2, verse 11, where now he focuses on our relationships with non-Christians. So there's a significant change here in this letter. All the way from chapter 2 through the middle of chapter 4, Peter focuses on how we're to interact with the world. And he walks through these different sections that we are going to cover. Last week he talked about, he talked about our role as citizens with the government. Uh, he's also going to talk about masters and slaves that was very common in the Roman Empire. And he's also going to talk about husbands and wives. And in each instance, really what he's trying to get at is how do we interact with non-Christians uh, that are in our lives. Some of them might be a, bit, a little bit more aloof and distant from the government. Maybe it's in our own household. How do we interact with non-Christians in an honorable way that brings glory and honor to Christ? Particularly challenging when we might experience hardship and persecution from those non-Christian relationships. So this is challenging stuff, and so Peter's helping us. How can we live out this calling we've been given here in the Christian life? Today, Peter focuses on the relationships between masters and slaves with a specific focus on slaves. Now, before you, before you think this passage will have no relevance for your life, I want to encourage you that that is not the case. Yes, Peter addresses the Christian slaves of his audience, but his words are applicable to all believers, both then and now. You see, the specific topic that Peter addresses in his audience there is the topic of unjust suffering. Unjust suffering. I think, speaking on my, you know, just me personally, and I think probably safe to say for many of you, that that is one of the hardest issues to deal with in life, is unjust suffering. It's one thing when our own stupid choices, our own sinful choices, bring consequences in our own lives. We can kind of say, yeah, I wish I hadn't done that, but at least I kind of see why it happened. But it's a lot harder when we see and experience things from the hands of others, and we didn't deserve that, right? It wasn't something we directly did, but we're going through a hardship and a difficulty as a result of others. And a lot of that, what we go through in life, that is the case, isn't it? A spouse might leave for another person. 
a classmate or coworker just simply doesn't like you for whatever reason and, and loves to make rude comments to you. Uh, someone does something negligent and there's an accident in your life and now you have to be the one to go through the, the, the physical pain and suffering that doesn't just get solved right away. Or maybe there's some financial distress that you now have to carry. Or maybe a friend or family member doesn't like your newfound Christian faith. And you experience hardship of the, because of that. All of that is unjust suffering. And on and on it goes here in this life. And so as Christians, how do we handle unjust suffering? How do we handle unjust suffering? Now, if we're honest with ourselves, it can be pretty tempting when we have these things happen in our lives. What's our first reaction? To want to lash out, right? To, to insult to get back, to get revenge, or maybe if we're not that type of personality where we say something, we just kind of grow bitter inside. Get hard in our hearts. Well, God has another way, amen? God has another way, amen? All right. <laughs> A better way that he wants us to live. And our passage shows us how we can learn from the example of Christ and how he dealt with unjust suffering and also learn uh, to see how the, the sacrifice of Christ empowers his people to not be destroyed by unjust suffering, but to rise above it and to live victorious lives for the glory of God. Amen? So if you're uh, there, we're going to pick up in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Before we look at the passage, though, I just wanted to give a, a, a brief, just couple of quick words about uh, slavery in the Roman Empire. Just so, again, we're kind of on the same page as we're opening up here, and Peter is discussing this topic here. Let me just give you four quick points about slavery in the ancient Roman Empire. First, slavery was very common. It was widely accepted. It was deeply established. The numbers speak for themselves. Scholars estimate that as high as one-third of the entire population was comprised of slaves. That's staggering, isn't it? Some estimate that nearly every household in Rome would have owned a slave. This explains why Peter brings it up. This was a culture where it was immersed in it, and as the church was born into this, people needed to know how do we deal with this subject. Second, slaves came from a variety of sources. The most common source was prisoners of war. Remember, Rome was always at war, it seemed like, and so they had this great influx of, of people who were prisoners of war. People also were enslaved through a variety of other ways, kidnapping, parents selling or abandoning their children, being born into a slave household, or selling themselves into slavery if they were destitute. By the way, slaves came from virtually every race in the Mediterranean region, unlike slavery in colonial America that was mostly race-based. Third, the roles and working conditions of slaves, they vary greatly. Some of them would do very hard labor out in the agricultural fields or the mines and so forth. But some of them uh, had did all kinds of different duties. One writer says that slaves could be doctors, teachers, writers, accountants, or excuse me, agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, and sea captains. Okay, 
So a lot of different ways they were uh, serving there in Roman society. They were often given education and training so that their, their, their masters would benefit from that. They would often live better than free people. They would own slaves themselves sometimes and were more educated than their masters. Most slaves had an expectation of freedom by the time they turned around 30 years of age. And so, you know, there was that hope for them in that regard. So in many ways, it, it, you know, there was some bright spots in the midst of this. But we also need to keep in mind, the last point that I want to bring up is that slaves were under the control of their masters. And all slaves shared this reality, okay? And so anytime this happens, we know that sinful man's sinful nature will rise up. One writer says about this, slaves possessed few legal rights, lacked honor, were subject to whatever punishment their masters deemed appropriate, and were sometimes treated with hideous cruelty, were permitted no legally sanctioned marriage or family bonds, could not keep their own children born into them while slavery, could be separated from their spouses by the slave master, and were not allowed to own property of any kind. So again, very hard conditions many times that they would experience. So Peter, again, he's writing to these churches that would have had great numbers of slaves in their midst. And so how does the gospel speak to them? And also we're going to see how this message addresses us today. So with this passage in mind, our background, let's look at our passage. The first part of our passage is to endure unjust suffering. Endure unjust suffering. Let's read verses 18 to 20 together. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So, again here, he's, he's speaking of slaves. It's better translated slaves rather than servants. It's remarkable, by the way, that Peter addresses them. He was show, this was breaking kind of cultural norms by showing them their great dignity and honor, by addressing them and not ignoring them. And Peter tells them to submit to their masters with all respect. You see that? Interestingly, though, that word there, respect, is better translated fear. He's not talking about the fear of their human master. What he's actually talking about is the fear of God. You see, every time he talks about fear in his letter, Peter's talking about fearing God. He's talking about fearing God. In fact, he says several times in chapter 3, not to fear man. So these slaves ultimately were serving God, not man. Now the question arises, were they to serve those who were good? or to serve those who were also unjust. Peter makes it clear that they were to serve both, weren't they? You see that there in the passage? Slaves were not exempt if their masters were necessarily evil unless they violated God's word. And then we're back to the same thing we saw last week with the government, that we are supposed to honor and obey the government unless it makes us do something that violates Scripture. Amen? So these slaves were to submit to their masters unless required to disobey Scripture. The motive for their actions is given in verse 19. 
Those who endure suffering while doing good for the Lord's sake will be rewarded by God. When he talks about a gracious thing there, he seems to be talking about they will be rewarded. Now, is Peter talking about a temporal reward? Perhaps we know that if they were just kind of honoring their masters as they were doing work and so forth, they would probably prosper, maybe even be freed a little bit faster. But I think he's also talking about a heavenly reward. I think he's talking about an inheritance. Because Peter has been talking about that a lot so far in, his, in this letter, hasn't he? Began the letter talking about an inheritance. Remember that is undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. I think this is what he's talking about, that when Christ returns, this is what you're going to receive. Paul says a similar things in Colossians chapter 3, when he wrote these words to slaves. In his letter, he says, Whatever you do, work heartily, ask for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So Peter urges these slaves to endure unjust suffering for the reward that awaits them when Christ returns. And when he returns, he is going to bring new creation, eternal life, resurrected bodies. So they were to endure unjust suffering. That's something that we need to file away in our minds, as we'll talk about a little bit later. Before moving on, skeptics often question why the New Testament doesn't explicitly condemn slavery. Why doesn't Peter say, I want you to revolt from your situation? I was going to answer that, but to answer it, it, it takes a little bit more here, okay? And so what I decided to do is put it in a handout, all right? So uh, after, ch after church, you can pick that up. But the handout just kind of in a nutshell says how the New Testament brilliantly sowed the seeds of slavery's demise from within and does not call for rebellion. And indeed, this was monumental because as you study global history, slavery has been part of mankind's history all over the world. Every major civilization has practiced slavery. But it died out in 10th century Europe, which was truly remarkable. And Christianity was the primary reason that it died out. I said, I'll talk more about this in the handout, but I'll let you pick it up after service on your way out. I, I'd love for you to pick up that copy and take it home and read about because this is something that skeptics will often bring out. Why doesn't this explicitly say that? Again, you see the New Testament's brilliance and why it goes about it the way that it does. So take one on your way out. You can read a little bit further about it. Didn't think it would be the best time and venue to go through it here right now. So going back to our passage, the second part is the example of Christ. The example of Christ. Let's read verses 21 to 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So again, Peter is talking to these slaves here that they would have been hearing this in the churches as these letters were read out loud, but I think his words are applicable to all Christians. 
especially since he talks about suffering so much in his letter. It's such a key theme. And Peter begins by saying that we have been called to this. Are you guys listening? We've been called to this. What have we been called to? We've been called to suffer unjustly. God wills that this would take place in your life. Notice very carefully, Scripture never says that God directly causes the suffering in your life, but He uses it in your life for His purposes. Does that make sense? He uses it in your life. And so if you're watching TV and you hear a smooth-talking preacher tell you that it is God's will for you to never suffer in your life. I hope warning bells go off in your head because he's flatly wrong. In case you think, well, I'm not so sure about that, Pastor. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, where he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to what? God's will. And trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I don't know how it could be said any clearer than that, right? It is God's will for you and I to endure unjust suffering. He is not the direct author of it, but he uses it in our lives. Now, as Peter says, God called you to suffer because of the example that Christ set for us. We're following his example. It's fascinating. The word example there in the Greek language was used of a stencil that they would use with children. When children would learn to write the alphabet letters, they would use these stencils to trace over it. In other words, Christ's example is like a stencil for us. And we're supposed to copy how he handled unjust suffering. Does that make sense? That's powerful, isn't it? So we need to see, what did Jesus do when he experienced this kind of unjust suffering? Well, in verse 22, drawn really heavily from Isaiah 53, he makes four points. Jesus didn't sin when he experienced unjust suffering. Now, it's one thing when everybody just loves you, right? Oh, man, so glad you're here. We are so glad that you are here. And we can't wait to talk to you. We're having such a wonderful time with you. When you're around people like that, hey, it's kind of easy not to sin, right? It's a whole lot easier. Jesus didn't get a lot of that, did he? Wherever he was going around, he had people verbally and sometimes even physically trying to attack him. But in the midst of it all, he did not sin. He also did not use deceit. He didn't twist the truth, which can, be a, which can be a temptation, can it? When we want to avoid hardships. Sometimes we're tempted to lie to win people over, aren't we? Or to avoid further suffering. You know, if I just kind of tell them what they want to hear, then they'll get off my back. Even though it's kind of twisting the truth a little bit. Ever had that temptation? Oh, yeah. Jesus used no deceit. Shot straight. How about this? He did not revile. 
when he was falsely accused by the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers, Jesus did not insult them in return. Now I know that's got to hit home with somebody here today. When somebody insults you, I'm not talking about just a little dig, but I mean they insult you. They do something that really cuts down to the core. They talk about something personal in your life. They talk about something that means something to you. And what is our first reaction? Oh, yeah? <laughs> right? It's, just, it's amazing how it just rises up in us. And we want to lash out. We want to revile. We want to insult them. We want to put them in their place. Jesus did not revile. Wow. He turned the other cheek, as he told us to do. And then fourthly, he trusted God. I think Jesus knew that he wasn't going to get a fair treatment at that trial before the religious leaders and before the Roman leaders. He knew that, but he trusted God. That he was going to be vindicated by God. And so he kept trusting God. That is how he endured such unjust suffering. And so church, we are to follow that example. We should not retaliate. We should not lash out. We should be willing to be wronged by others. Now to clarify, just to clarify, I'm not saying that there's not a time and a place where you sit down with someone and you have a respectful conversation or maybe you share how your feelings were hurt or maybe you ask them not to do such and such again. And certainly if there's abuse or a need for the authorities to step in, absolutely, those things need to happen, okay? But in most cases, it's generally, usually a case where we just have, uh, we just experience unjust suffering. And so how do we deal with it? Like I said earlier, you go through an accident and it wasn't your fault, but now you got to bear the brunt. Or maybe your spouse leaves you. Or maybe someone's rude to you. Or maybe you're persecuted because of your faith. We need to keep trusting God even when the circumstances don't change. Even when the circumstances don't look like they're going to change. That's not easy, is it? Now, what I, don't, what I don't want to communicate is that, okay, you're just kind of telling me to be a Christian stoic, right? Where I just kind of blank face it all day long, right? I just kind of disconnect from the world. And, you know, some people do that, don't they? They get kind of beaten up in life, and they just sort of say, you know what? I'm not going to let it affect me anymore. And they kind of turn into a shell of themselves. Never really get happy, never really get sad, just flatline all the time. That's not what Scripture's teaching here. That's not what Scripture's teaching. That's not what it means to trust God. And in fact, God wants us to lay our burdens before Him. Lay our burdens before Him. As you read the Psalms, what many of the Psalms are what they call lament Psalms, where the writers just pour out their souls to God. They don't hold back. They lay out their grief. They lay out their pain. Psalm 13, maybe one of the most famous psalms. David says this in the opening verses. 
How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be be exalted over me? That doesn't sound like a Christian stoic, does it? Very powerful words. Very powerful hurt. He's pouring out his heart. But notice how he ends the psalm. Make sure you hear this, church. He ends by saying, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He starts with lament, but he ends with trust. And that's how God wants us to be. Think of it like a conveyor belt where the Lord, where, or excuse me, where the world is maybe just sending to you unjust suffering. It's just coming your way. And if you need to, you know what? You just lament. You pour it out to God, but then you keep trusting him, right? More unjust suffering keeps coming your way. You lament. You pour out your heart to God, but then you just keep trusting the Lord. So church, even when things do not make sense, Let us not stand in judgment over God over the things we're going through. We can trust him. We can trust him. We can trust that he is at work. We can trust that he is at work for our good. Amen? No matter what the circumstance, Romans 8.28 declares, we know that for those who love God, what? Some things work for our good? No. All things work for our good. We can trust that God is going to judge sin when he returns. There's no injustice that you're going to experience in this life that slips past the notice of God on Judgment Day. It'll all be accounted for. Most of all, we can trust that he will establish a new creation. Give us those resurrection bodies that aren't going to wear out. And we are going to savor his presence for the rest of eternity. When we keep these things in mind, we're prepared to handle that unjust suffering. Following the example of Christ. So Jesus not only set an example by enduring unjust suffering, he also bore our sins on the cross. His sacrifice gives us power to overcome unjust suffering. Let's read uh, verses 24 to 25 as we talk about the sacrifice of Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but we have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our our souls. So through the cross of Christ, the word tree there is used as a metaphor for the cross. Through the cross of Christ, we're made right with God. And not only that, we're not only made right with God, but he wants us to live right with him. He wants us to put to death sin. He wants us to live in righteousness, to display righteous character in our lives. And part of that is how we handle unjust suffering. The passage closes with that imagery of the sheep and the shepherd. Prior to salvation, we're those strange sheep. Helpless. Not the brightest creatures around. And completely without a chance of saving ourselves. I saw a video recently that was a great depiction of us. Because sheep are used as analogies for us as people. The video starts with this sheep. All you see is its back legs. It is stuck in in this kind of ditch here. 
And so you hear the sheep down there, and the, and the young boy pulls the sheep out of the ditch. And the sheep, you know, shakes off, does a little bath, runs along the side of the ditch, starts cruising, takes this huge jump right into the ditch again. <laughs> and it's just stuck. It's just wedged in there like this. And the shepherds are kind of laughing, thinking, man, what on earth? That's a great analogy for us, isn't it? Strained sheep, totally stuck, with no chance of rescuing ourselves. And so Jesus comes along, the great shepherd, and he rescues us. But you know what's so amazing about Jesus? Is that he doesn't just kind of reach in and pull us out and goes along his way. No, it took much more for him to rescue us, didn't it? He says in John chapter 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his, his life for the sheep. What makes Jesus so good is that he's willing to rescue us by laying down his own life, church. Say, so why did he do that? He did that because that was the only way that you and I can be rescued. Our sins need to be covered, don't they? They need to be paid for. They need to be atoned for. And here's the thing. We're all strange sheep, aren't we? We can't save ourselves. We're all sinners. The, every person is riddled in their thoughts and their actions and their words. Things that we have done that displease God. So we need someone else who is sinless to come and take our place. And that's where Jesus steps in. He's willing to be that one that took our place on the cross. He was sinless and endured the wrath of God in our place. What we would have endured and held Jesus endured on the cross. Have you ever embraced Christ? You must. Because we can't save ourselves. And he did not die unless it was somehow necessary for him to do so. But I want you to be encouraged that if that has never taken place in your life, that there is nothing you have done in your past that that good shepherd will not wipe away. All of it, all of it, past, present, and even future, he wipes away. That's his love for us. It's the greatest love in this entire universe. You might have great love with your spouse, your children, your parents, your friends, but nothing compares to that love of Jesus. That he was willing to do that on our behalf. And he tells us, if you would like to follow him, if you would like to become a Christian, that we are to turn from our sins. We are straying sheep. We need to acknowledge that before him and ask him to forgive us of our sins. And that and we also should place our faith in him to believe who he truly is. God in human flesh who lived that sinless life so that you and I could be forgiven. And when we do that, we experience the love of God that overshadows anything we can experience in this world. And you will praise the Lord as we sang about earlier, how great thou art. Thank you. Lord Jesus, for rescuing a strange sheep like me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Lord God, I thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word here this morning. Thank you that it's always timeless and relevant, Lord. And Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for the door of salvation that you open. I pray for someone here today who maybe has never followed you as Savior and Lord, never become a Christian, that, Lord, you might draw them to yourself today. Rescue that strange sheep, that they would turn to you in repentance and faith. And, Lord, we pray as your people. Lord, we have much to think about and apply in our lives about how to follow your example with enduring unjust suffering. Lord, forgive us in our hearts and in our actions where we have sought revenge, where we have lashed out, where we have grown bitter toward others. Lord, maybe we need to forgive someone even now in our hearts this morning. And Lord Jesus, we just praise you, praise you for your love for us that is endless and fathomless, Lord. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, the letter closes in the very last chapter with these words. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.